really good to see you all. I see that um, our administrative assistant who sent out the newsletter early in the week used a little, uh, a little deception to get you to come. Some of you know what I'm referring to. It said in the newsletter that Eric Lawyer was preaching today. So you saw that and you said, hey, I want to hear him. If she said, I was preaching, you might have said, eh, I think I'll go to the beach. I don't say that seriously, but for someone who preaches only occasionally, that's like a little nagging fear in the back of your mind that somebody's going to find out that you're the one and, eh. So thank you for being here. And I, <laughs> better than the beach. Thank you, I, I think. <clears throat> um, really, what I have for you today is, is kind of like a one-point sermon. And it can be summed up in um, a very few words. And it's actually a question, and here's the question. What breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? We'll be taking that up. We'll start there. We'll probably finish there. But it's the key to understanding this passage that we're looking at in Acts 21. So if you would, turn with me. And I'm kind of technologically challenged, so you won't see it up here, I don't think. It's magic. I love that. All right. I'll read it from here, from the Bible that Eric tried to steal from me. <laughs> oh, you're not going to hear the end of that one for a while. Acts 21. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, Leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our, way, on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until they, we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When, they had finished the, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted our brothers and stayed there with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying many days, for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? 
For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Let me pray. Jesus, may this always be the posture of our hearts, that no matter what the petitions we might bring, we would say, let the will of the Lord be done. And we would say that today. Let your will be done here in this place, in hearts, in lives. Use your word by your spirit and let your will be done. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I just want to say something prefatory that has nothing to do with the message, but if you're here and you've never met one of our missionaries, missionaries, Robin Lawrence, you need to meet her today. Say hello to her. Robin, would you just, I won't ask you to stand, just wave. Okay. <clears throat> Robin's on home assignment for a few months. She's, she serves the Lord in Central Asia. Ask her about that. <clears throat> All right, we've come to a, a transition in our study of Acts. We've been here for roughly a year, give or take. And here in chapter 21, we're about three quarters of the way through. Paul has been the dominant figure since uh, chapter 13 when he and Barnabas were sent out by the elders of the church in Antioch. Paul now finds his ministry turning a corner. He, he will plant no more churches. His days of taking the gospel to the Gentiles as he chooses are over. In fact, his freedom to do so has come to an end, at least for Luke's purposes here in Acts. From this chapter to the end of the book, which is not necessarily to say to the end of his life, but to the end of the book, Paul is a prisoner, and his movements are under the control of others, mostly the Roman authorities. Now, there's general agreement that this imprisonment is one from which Paul will be released, and he will likely travel to Spain, <clears throat> certainly to Rome, on what is presumably a fourth missionary journey. But Luke does not record that. So for purposes of the book of Acts, this is the kind of a, a shift. So I thought it would be good for us to do a very brief overview of where we have come, since it's easy for us to kind of lose our perspective. Acts is a long book by New Testament standards. It was a book written for a specific purpose, and it was written by Luke to a man named Theophilus. If you look in the first few verses of the book, he explains his purpose. But sometimes we get too close to the trees that we can no longer see the forest, if you understand what I'm saying. So step back with me. Paul is turning a corner, figuratively speaking, and seems to have set his sights on the finish line. <clears throat> wherever that might be and whatever that might be. His determination to reach Jerusalem by Pentecost, which he expressed a chapter or two earlier, <clears throat> gives this portion of the narrative a feel very similar to Luke's gospel. If you think um, back to Luke's gospel, there was a place in chapter 9, where, verse 51, where he said, when the days drew near for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
There's no exact parallel in terms of a direct statement like, there, like that, but you get the feel as you read through this that, that Paul is figuratively speaking, kind of turning his back on what has already happened. He's looking forward to what lies ahead and he knows that what lies ahead involves his, his suffering and ultimately his martyrdom. So as we read from Acts 20 on, the clues are there that this is a new phase in Paul's life and ministry. In 20 verse 16, he is said to be in a hurry to get to to Jerusalem, which prompts him to sail past Ephesus rather than spending more time with the church where he's really invested the most time and energy. This is consistent with the decision he made in 1921 not the year 1921, chapter 19, verse 21. I know some of you are thinking. I wasn't around then. Just before the riot, just before the riot in Ephesus, which says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. So he wanted to, something was motivating him probably the Holy Spirit, to go to Jerusalem. Although, oftentimes when it says the Spirit and it's capitalized in your version, it's a little up for grabs whether it's, whether it's the Holy Spirit or his own spirit. But for our purposes, we'll accept that it was the Holy Spirit. And he was, he was in a sense, driven to get to Jerusalem. There's another thing that, that tells us that this is a, a t- kind of a transition is the tone of his speech to the Ephesian elders in the previous chapter which uh, Eric preached on uh, just last week. And his statement to them that they will never see him again injects a note of finality to this phase of Paul's ministry. And here in chapter 21, verse 4, we have what some would consider ominous predictions that Paul should not go to Jerusalem when it says, Uh, In the second half of the verse, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. There's the prophecy from Agabus here in chapter 21. And Agabus, you may remember, was the prophet who came to Jerusalem and predicted the worldwide famine. And I understand this was about 15 years earlier. So this guy's been around. He's got a track record. And he, uh, he gives this dramatic prophecy to Paul where he acts out what's going to happen to Paul once he gets to Jerusalem. Turns out mostly to be true. Then there's Paul's own statement that he's ready to die in Jerusalem. It's not, you know, yeah, I'm ready to be locked up, I'm ready to die. So again, all this is very much in keeping with what Ananias, one of the early disciples, was instructed to to say to Paul then Saul of Tarsus, about what his ministry would look like. In chapter 9, 16, I'll just read it for you since I have it here. It's not that magic. <clears throat> in 9, 16, the Lord says to Ananias and instructs him to give this message to Paul. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's part of the message from Ananias to Paul or Saul. So part and parcel of his ministry as an apostle is this idea of suffering. Now it's interesting that the emphasis is there on suffering rather than, as I thought through this, I, you know, 
If I was sending Ananias to Saul of Tarsus, I might tell him to give Paul a list of the amazing things that would be accomplished through his ministry. You're gonna plant multiple churches. You're gonna write a big chunk of, the new, of what will become the New Testament. You're gonna travel all over the world taking the gospel. You're gonna appear before, and he, he does tell him he, he will appear before kings. But the thrust of the message that Ananias has given to give to Paul is, you're gonna suffer. You're gonna suffer for the sake of the name of the Lord. What's missing from that prophecy is the part about Paul carrying the Lord's name before kings. He hasn't done that yet, but he will. So stick with us for a few more chapters. He will do that while he's still uh, in custody. It's impossible to miss the prevalence of suffering in Paul's years of carrying out the mission given to him by the Lord. Just for, for a little perspective's sake, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writing at a time when uh, he's late in his ministry, uh, just gives a little list of the things he's been through for the sake of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without, without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things. There's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all churches. Sound like a job you would have signed up for? Taking applications? Mm, I don't know. So what I want to do, that was all kind of introductory. What I want to do is take a look back at Paul's marching orders, take a look ahead at what his life is going to, how it's going to change from chapter 21 on, and then Um, I want to ask the question, which is kind of a corollary to the question, what breaks your heart? Whose story is this anyway? Whose story is this anyway? So Paul got his marching orders in Acts 9, and they played out from the time of his conversion in uh, two major aspects which Paul was told by Ananias, number one, he would be God's messenger, his instrument, to take the gospel to the Gentiles and kings and his own Jewish people. And number two, his life would be marked by suffering. And indeed, it was that way. Beginning in chapter 13 of Luke's narrative, we see Paul traveling to most of the known world, evangelizing and planting churches. From Antioch, he's sent sent out to Cyprus, to Pisidian Antioch, to Iconium, to Lystra, back to Antioch, and that was just the first journey. That was the shorter of his journeys. I suspect most of your Bibles have maps in the back showing the missionary journeys of Paul. And if you're like me, you probably haven't spent much time looking at those. But I would encourage you to do that. Do that this afternoon. 
and check out how far Paul traveled to take the gospel to, to those who didn't have it. And consider that, that was, it was mostly done on foot or in what we would consider pretty primitive sailing vessels. It was an amazing ministry. It was a truly amazing ministry. Think about the churches he planted. It was just truly remarkable. But the other part of the prophecy conveyed by Ananias was also true, namely that he was going to suffer for the sake of the Lord's name. We already read 2 Corinthians 11. So that's what's been going on for Paul. He's been in a lot of places. He's been preaching to a lot of different people. He's been planting churches. Sound like what we want to do here? Preach the gospel, plant churches in this region and beyond? We kind of the great-great-great-great-grandchildren uh, of Paul in that sense. Whether the Lord would grant us the privilege of being anywhere near as effective as he was, that's up to the Lord. But that's the mission of this church. Along with <clears throat> that suffering, how will Paul's life change from chapter 21 on? And although the method may change in terms of Paul's freedom to move about at will, his essential ministry will remain unchanged. He will be st still be taking the gospel to the Gentiles and kings and his own people, nor will his suffering be eliminated. As you read through the pastoral epistles, you see that Paul's was not a pleasant existence. He wrote 2 Timothy especially toward the end of his life, and you see that he was abandoned by ministry associates. He was kept in chains while in Rome. He was deserted by others of his acquaintances. He was opposed and harmed by others. And those are all just in 2 Timothy. These individuals, I would suggest to you, obviously of the kick a man while he's down school, those who uh, turned their backs on him while he was in Rome. But Paul kept his eyes on the finish line and the crown that he'd receive from his righteous judge on that day. In 2 Timothy 4, 8, you know these words. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul loved his appearing. Paul looked forward to the, the crown of righteousness he would receive. Well then, the question, we looked back, we looked forward from the standpoint of Acts 21, whose story is this? Well, it's not Paul's story at the end of the day. Note that here in chapter 21 of Acts, Paul hadn't ever ministered in Tyre as far as we know, but he's warmly received by the believers there. They formed a bond of friendship in the seven days they had together. If it had been just his story, probably wouldn't have happened. I won't say this is only possible in the context of a shared faith in Christ, but it is certainly the characteristic experience of family members. You may have experienced that. 
Um, I trust you've had the experience anyway of meeting and spending time with strangers, quote unquote, who turn out to be Christians and then finding that you have an immediate bond with them because of your shared faith. You're members of the family. Pat and I were in Williamsburg not that that long ago, just a few weeks ago. Met a couple from Texas. Never met them before. But we shared a faith with them in the conversation that came out. And um, we enjoyed that fellowship for the time we were there. Wasn't what we have here, but God provided that for us in a place far away, relatively speaking, from here. So, if it had been Paul's story, something like that probably would not have happened because Paul's identity was not that he was a former Pharisee, a former persecutor of the church. No, his identity was he had been bought by Christ. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, he said. He had not I, but Christ lives in me. So he had a common faith with all who could say that about their faith in Christ. How do we deal with the prophecies to Paul here in chapter 21, verse 4, and again in verses 10 through 12, which we already read? But if you go back a chapter to chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. You have people urging Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. Something bad's going to happen. He himself knew something bad was going to happen. But he persisted, he persevered, probably a better word, in his purpose to go on to Jerusalem. Now, so how do we do with, deal with this when Paul's given, message, given messages by other people of something uh, unpleasant happening to him? Well, one possibility is that they were intended to prepare him for what was to come in Jerusalem and follow, following, not necessarily to persuade him not to follow through on his intent to go to the city. In any event, Paul is not necessarily, necessarily being disobedient to the Spirit. Indeed, His resolve to go to Jerusalem was expressed by Luke in similar terms two chapters earlier before any of these messages. In 1921, we read this. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Again, he resolved in the spirit. ESV has capital S. Was it in the Holy Spirit and His Spirit? doesn't really matter. I don't think we have to answer that question because he believed that was where the Lord was taking him. So here's the key to understanding this passage, and it's in 21, verses 13 and 14. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. 
<clears throat> what broke Paul's heart? What broke Paul's heart? I asked you the question at the beginning, what breaks your heart? Let's look at what broke Paul's heart. According to one commentator, a commentator who wrote a few hundred years ago, so the language is, is a little difficult for us, it was a trouble to him that they should so earnestly press him to that in which he could not gratify them without wronging his conscience. In other words, his problem was his friends wanted him to do one thing, his conscience was telling him to do another thing. And it broke his heart not to be able to, uh, in effect, make his friends happy. The same commentator goes on to call this an unkind kindness. They're urging him to not go to Jerusalem. A cruel pity. Their effort to convince Paul to go against what he is convinced that the Lord has directed him to do. Paul would have wanted to please his friends. It's no different from us. But he was more motivated to please his Lord and Master. He wished that they could have supported his decision in this regard. If he had to disappoint somebody, better to disappoint his friends than to disappoint the Lord. Now, interestingly, the same commentator also points out that if the believers in this case, there were people, believers living in Caesarea, if they had known the future, they would have realized that Paul would be held under house arrest. Think about this. He was held under house arrest in their own city for at least two years with consider considerable freedom to receive friends who were attending to his needs. You find that in Acts 24, verses 22 to 27. How often do we despair of our own circumstances only to find that the Lord has anticipated the situation and commanded a blessing instead of pain or even in the pain? This reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Tim Keller where he wrote, when we make our requests known to God, we can thank him ahead of time for giving us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knew. Think about that. When we make our requests known to God, we can thank him ahead of time for giving us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knew. We don't know everything he knows. Our requests come from this very limited perspective. Our knowledge is limited. And when we complain to God about our circumstances, we reveal not just our ignorance, but also our lack of trust in his providence. Will he keep his promises? Absolutely. What's the key to Paul's resolve here? In the immediate context, <clears throat> we see it in his words to the Ephesian elders in the previous chapter. If I had read on, we would have read these words in uh, verse 24 of chapter 20. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. I do not account my life of any value. Any value. When's the last time you heard somebody say that? When's the last time you even thought that for yourself? And then he has his words in Philippians 1, verses 20 and 21. 
It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that will f- with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. And here's the thing about that. Paul really believed what he said in these verses. It wasn't just a lofty thought that he had not considered its, its implications for him. Indeed, he was willing to continue living in order to serve the church in Philippi, but as, I, as he said in verse 23, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. More necessary on your account. So it wasn't all about what Paul wanted. In fact, it wasn't at all about what Paul wanted. Paul didn't have a bucket list, a term that's made its way into our vernacular. Almost everybody has a bucket list, the things that they want to do before they die. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But he didn't care about seeing the seven wonders of the ancient world or riding a camel through the Sahara or any of the rough equivalents to our typical lists. He wasn't even wanting to postpone death until after he got married. Remember, he was a bachelor. Or parenthood, or grandparenthood. There was nothing he wanted more than to be with Christ. His heart belonged to Christ the one who loved him and died for him and showed grace to him in all of his life's trials and suffering and labor for the gospel. And and he was willing to submit to Christ's will no matter what that meant. So if you had said, Paul, which would you choose? Clearly, he would choose to go to heaven, be with Christ. But he would choose what Christ chose for him, which was that he remain in the flesh for a time and for the sake of those believers. So to return to the question I posed at the outset, what breaks your heart? There's a little four-year-old girl who's been in my house for the last couple days who was heartbroken this morning because her brother took the muffin she wanted. Absolutely devastated. Maybe your heart is broken by the pictures of the starving children around the world that so many different organizations, Christian and non-Christian, send to you so frequently. Now, don't get me wrong. It's good to have tender hearts toward those in need and without, who are in need and without the gospel. But is it knowing, I'm sorry, is it Is that what should come to mind first when a question like that is posed? Life is full of tragedies. And we would deny our common humanity if we were somehow callous to them. We have to have hearts that can be broken. But knowing that is is knowing that the Lord's name isn't hallowed for the most part, does that break your heart? Is that what should come to mind first? knowing that his will is not done in earth as it is in heaven, knowing that millions around around the world are doomed to an eternity in hell if the gospel isn't taken to them. 
Does that break our hearts? Paul has an urgency about this ministry that puts most of us to shame. Now maybe, may the Lord open our hearts to what really matters to him, to the Lord, and may this church be known as a place where the priorities of the Lord of the church are ours as well. So here are a few questions just to, to take with you and ponder. What's on your bucket list? What's on your bucket list? What, if anything, is of more value to you than your very life? How can your, your heart be more aligned with the Lord's priorities? Indeed, what breaks your heart? Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that our hearts are fickle. They are entranced by trinkets and things of the world all too often and all too infrequently our hearts are broken by the lostness of people all around us. So Father, give us hearts that beat with the same priorities that Paul's did. Give us a desire to see your name hallowed, your will done in this place and around the world. And give us the honesty and the courage to look at the question of what breaks our hearts and to do so with resolve to take appropriate action no matter what it might cost. Lord, Lord, give us Jesus-like hearts, I pray in his name. Amen.